0: As you know, I'm not Pastor Icky, although I will confess that I was born and grew up in the continent of Asia. <laughs> but since I'm a stranger, my name is A.K. Kurovilla. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm not often on stage. That's what I meant. So um, I'm one of the pastors here at Bayou City Fellowship. Turn with me to Nehemiah 9. We're in this series going through the book of Nehemiah. It was March the 1st, 2020, that we had a regular service, if you want to call it, uh, where there was seating to capacity of the room, Uh, there were no masks, and everything was normal. And then the coronavirus invaded our lives, and things changed. There was distress of all kinds beginning with that time, uh, and, and it went on for the whole year. There was distress on the social front, distress on the political front, Uh, there was distress because of the virus itself, and in our own sphere, there was distress because of some changes in our church. And as if that were not enough, uh, in 2021, we faced a deep freeze that basically froze us in position for a little while, and we're still dealing with burst pipes and wet sheetrock, Uh, It affected us personally here. Just a couple of days ago, about three days ago, I was on my way to the Cyprus campus. My wife, Susan, called me and said, hey, we're in real trouble here. I said, what happened? So the carpet and the carpet padding and everything is so wet, there seems to be some water coming down at one corner of the room. Uh, Now, I'm a reasonable uh, homeowner. I mean, after the freeze, I kind of looked around. I didn't see anything major. But in this particular case, for the last seven or 10 days, I had not been in this room. So there was a very minor leak. It was a hairline crack, we found out, that let water drip down the walls and onto the carpet, and it created that distressful situation. Now, distress comes to us in all kinds of different ways, Uh, whether it be relational distress, emotional distress, financial distress, we are naturally inclined to find out what's causing this distress. That's our first step. We try to do that and then try to identify what it is. Sometimes it's pretty straightforward, sometimes it's not. Sometimes what we think is the problem is not the real problem. Regardless, we try to understand it so that we can fix it. In Nehemiah chapter 9, we find a people in distress. In fact, great distress is what the text tells us. In fact, uh, Nehemiah 9, 36 and 37 describes the stress. Behold, we are slaves today, and as to the land which you gave to our fathers to eat of its fruit and its bounty, behold, we are slaves in it. Its abundant produce is for the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They also rule over our bodies and over our cattle as they please. So we are in great distress. So there are people here in distress. They're slaves in their own land. They have kings over them, uh, telling them and owning them and driving their very lives. That's the distress that they're in. Now the question is, what is it causing these people to do? And obviously then, does it give us any instruction or indication as to what we must do, knowing this is God's inspired word? As Pastor Aki reminded us, uh, this, is God's all, this is part of the all scripture that is inspired, that's God breathed. It is useful for teaching, to teach us what is right. Uh, it is useful for reproof, we read to make us realize what is wrong with our lives. It is useful for correction, to correct us when we are wrong. And it is useful for training us in righteousness, teaching us to do that which is right. And God uses it to prepare and equip us for every good work, which is what uh, we read in the Bible. So for context, this wall has been repaired in record time, in 52 days. It was done with participation from all kinds of people. It was done against all kinds of opposition. It was done because God's gracious hand was on Nehemiah. And it was done so quick and so well because it was God-prompted, it was God-directed, and it was God-enabled. Now, what is the result of people seeing this God-prompted, God-directed, and God-enabled work? We saw that in chapter 8, they asked for the law to be brought out and they wanted to listen to what God was telling them. And in fact, in verse 3 last week we saw, and all the people were attentive to the book of the law. They wanted the law to be read and they were listening attentively for it. They saw the work of God in 52 days in a very distressful situation that brought them to the word of God and they wanted it to listen to what God had to tell them. It's no different from us. I mean, typically, when things are going well, we we keep cruising along. Uh, When life gets difficult, uh, immediately we have a tendency to move uh, to prayer, to listen to what God has said. It's no different. That's human nature. And life goes on with those people just as it often goes on with us. Now, the first thing we read was they were grieved. But the Levites tell them in 11 and 12, don't be grieved. They said, uh, all the people went away, verse 12, to eat, chapter 8, to drink, to send portions, and to celebrate a great festival. Why? Because they understood the words which had been made known to them. So the celebration, just for understanding the words that were made known to them, that was worthy of a celebration, even though when they listened to that, they had a natural tendency to mourn. And then, you find that they celebrated the festival of boots, and that hadn't been done from the time of Joshua. Verse 17, the entire assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made boots and lived in them. The sons of Israel had indeed not done so from the days of Joshua the son of Nun to that day, and there was great rejoicing. It kind of tells us the, the extent of this neglect. For almost 900 years, they didn't care about the festival that God had asked them to celebrate. So that's the level of neglect, which brings us then to chapter 9 and verse 1. On the 24th day of this month, the sons of Israel assembled with fasting in sackcloth and with dirt upon them. So what is it about this 24th day of the seventh month? Well, in Leviticus, we find that on the 15th day of the seventh month, they were to celebrate the Festival of Boots. It had to start with a holy convocation or an assembly. Then it was followed by seven days of offering. And then an eighth day was another assembly or a convocation. 15 plus 8, 23, that brings us to the 24th day. The celebration is over. Now we find the people mourning with fasting and, and, and sackcloth and dirt on themselves. And there was a separation from all foreigners. Verse 2, the descendants of Israel separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. Why the separation? Because in Deuteronomy, for example, God had told them that they should not intermarry with the peoples of the land that they were coming to. But then that brings up a question. Why all this fasting and mourning and separation? It was basically a confession that they had been disobedient to the Lord and they were repentant. It was a confession because they agreed with what God told them. They agreed with God's assessment of the situation. They agreed with God's diagnosis and therefore they were were moved by that. They They were responding to that. Now, how long did they do this reading and stuff? Verse three, while they stood in their place, they read from the book of the law of the law of the Lord their God for a fourth of the day, and for another fourth they confessed and worshipped the Lord their God. So this was their worship service. Six hours. Three hours of listening, three hours of confession and worship. That was what went on. Now when people listen to God's word and respond, things happen. Well, Even if there are no living beings, when God speaks, he can bring creation into existence. He can speak, and he can multiply bread and fish. He can speak and calm all nature. He can speak, and dead Lazarus comes back alive. Now, this is all non-living beings, but when he speaks to us living beings, particularly to our children, and we respond, things can happen. We can have fractured relationships that are reconciled. We can have broken marriages that can be restored. Uh, We can have hopeless situations that can become hopeful. Why? Because the children of God listen and respond to God. When God speaks and we respond, things happen. Obviously, all that hinges on two things, listening and responding. So verse 3 tells us they listened, they confessed, and they worshipped. Now, Verses 4 and 5 tell us there was a group of Levites who were lamenting. And uh, then you have another group that says, Arise, bless the Lord your God forever and ever. Oh, may your glorious name be blessed and exalted above all blessing and praise. Now, what does it mean to bless the Lord? Now, we use the term stay blessed, be blessed, blessings. Now, we can understand how God blesses us God adds something to us, makes us better, enables us to do something that we cannot do by ourselves. He can add something, and we can call that blessing. But how do we bless God? What on earth does that mean? Well, if God is the source of all blessings, then He Himself is blessed above all. So when we say, bless the Lord, it's just a joyful proclamation or an explanation of who he is, more like I will magnify the Lord, or I will exalt his name, or let's exalt his name together. It's not that we are making God bigger than who he is, or exalting him more than he is in his exalted state. It is a joyful proclamation. So arise, bless the Lord, is more of an expression that says he is blessed above all because he is the source of all blessings. So from seeing what God has done and hearing from the book of the law, they're convicted and convinced that the Lord is the ultimate being and his name is glorious, that he is exalted above all blessing and praise. Then in verses 6 through 15, it is really a focus on God. Very interesting, about 20 plus times the word you or your referring to God is used in the space of nine words. Let's quickly go through them. Verse six: "You alone are the Lord, you have made the heavens, the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, you give life to all them, uh, all of them, and the heavenly host bows down before you. God created. God alone is the creator, a creator of everything that we see and everything that we don't see." Then they go on to uh, recognize that. God called, you are the Lord God who chose Abraham and brought him out from Ur of the Chaldees and gave him the name Abraham. He called this man and changed his name to Abraham saying he'd be the father of a multitude and gave him that name. He called him. Not only did he call him, he blessed him. You found, verse eight, you found his heart faithful before you and made a covenant with him to give him the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite and the Gerisha. To give it to his descendants, and you have fulfilled your promises. God is a God who created, he called, he blessed. They discovered this as they heard the law. Not only that, God rescued and redeemed, verses 9 through 11. You saw their affliction, heard their cry. You performed signs and wonders against all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly toward them. And made a name for yourselves as it is this day. God does make a name for himself as well. You divided the sea before them, so they passed through the midst of the sea on dry ground. And their pursuers you hurled into the depths, like a stone into raging waters. That's what God did. He rescued and redeemed. He didn't stop with that. He then guided them, verse 12. And with a pillar of cloud you led them by day, and with a pillar of fire by night delight for them the way in which they were to go did god stop there no he then instructed them verses 13 and 14 then you came down on mount sinai and spoke with them from heaven you gave them just ordinances and true laws and good statutes and commandments so you made known to them your holy sabbath and laid down for them commandments statutes and law through your servant moses now what is the difference between an ordinance a law, uh, commands, and statutes. Ordinances are judgments or legal decisions that we are told they are just. Laws are basically instruction. Instructions given the reality of the situation. And we read here that uh, the laws are also true. Then we find statutes, which are basically obligations that are prescribed, and they are good, we're told. And then there are commandments. They are direct orders. They are also good. So God not only rescued and guided, he also instructed them. He didn't stop there. He provided bread and water, verse 15. You provided bread from heaven for them, for their hunger. You brought forth water from the rock for them, for their thirst. And you told them to enter in order to possess the land which you swore to give them. God provided bread and water and land. This is who God is. The focus first is on who God is and what He has done. I slide Slide six, maybe. I'm sorry. We'll keep going. Sorry. (laughs) All right. And then, this is who God is. Go back a slide, please. Yes. God created, God called, God blessed, God rescued, God guided, God instructed, God provided. That is what we see, a focus on who God is and what he has done for his people. Now, what did the people do? Starts with the next slide, verse 16. But... They, our fathers, acted arrogantly. They became stubborn, would not listen to your commands. They refused to listen and did not remember your wondrous deeds which you had performed for them. So they became stubborn and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. They acted arrogantly. They were stubborn. They refused to listen. In spite of who God was and what God did for his people. They did not remember. They conveniently forgot his wondrous deeds as they rescued them, as he rescued them from Egypt. Now you wonder, what on earth is going on with these people? How can they be so foolish and blind to what God has done? Now, before we quickly condemn that, we may want to consider this. If we are stubborn and refuse to listen to God's word in obedience, and if we act arrogantly, and if we conveniently forget God's wondrous deeds in our life, we have to ask ourselves, what on earth is going on? How can we be so foolish and blind? But that's what people did. Well, how did God respond? Next slide. Verse 17, the second part. But you are a God of forgiveness, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, and you did not forsake them. God did not forsake them. God is a God who's gracious and compassionate, is what they learned. And verses 19 through 21, God provided for them even when they called something else, God, right? Uh, We find that in verse, verse 18. Even when they made for themselves a calf of molten metal and said, this is your God who brought you up from Egypt and committed great blasphemies. Even when they did that, you in your great compassion did not forsake them in the wilderness and you continued to guide them. Pillar of cloud did not leave them by day, to guide them on their way or you know, the pillar of fire by night, to light for them the way in which they were to go. He didn't stop there. He went on from there and enriched them. Look at verses 22 through 25. "You also gave them kingdoms and peoples. This is in spite of the way they responded to him, and allotted them to them, allotted them to them as a boundary. They took possession of the land. You made their sons numerous as the stars of heaven and you brought them into the land which you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So their sons entered and possessed the land and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites. And you gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land to do with them as they desired. And they captured fortified cities and a fertile land. They took possession of houses full of every good thing Hewn cisterns, vineyards, olive groves, fruit trees in abundance. So they ate, were filled, and grew fat, and reveled in your great goodness. God enriched them beyond their wildest dreams. Even though they refused to listen to him, they were stubborn, and they were arrogant. God was good to them. Then if we go to verses 26 through 31, we see the cycle of how God works with them, how they respond, and what happens. So three times we see people's action and God's response. Verses 26, uh, we see, first of all, but they became disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their backs. So they were absolutely rebellious, they were disobedient, they tossed God's law, Law they had nothing to do with the Bible, no preacher, no Bible study, no Christian radio, no nothing. They did not want to have anything to do with his law. That's what they did. And, uh, and, and then we find, verse 27, what happens. Therefore you delivered them into the hand of their oppressors who oppressed them. But when they cried to you in the time of their distress, you heard from heaven, and according to your great compassion, you gave them deliverers, who delivered them from the hand of their oppressors. So there's disobedience and rebellion. God delivers them into the hand of some oppressors. They get oppressed. Times get tough. They cry out. God delivers. Now, it doesn't happen just once. You find that happening again. Verse 27. Or, or Verse 28. But as soon as they had rest... They did evil again before you. Therefore, you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they ruled over them. When they cried again to you, you heard from him. And many times you rescued them according to your compassion. The same story. They did evil before God, and God abandoned them into the hands of their enemies. They suffer, they cry out, and God comes and rescues that's not over. Verse 29 through 31. God then admonishes them, sends them prophets, and yet they acted arrogantly and did not listen to your commandments, but sinned against your ordinances, by which if a man observes them, he shall live. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not listen. However, see what God's doing. You bore with them for many years and admonished them by your spirit, through your prophets. Yet they would not give ear, and therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the land. So again, acted arrogantly, they would not listen. They would not listen to the prophets. So he delivers them into the hands of their enemies. So what happens this time? Where is their cry and where is God's deliverance? Well, the cry comes in verse 32. Because it's the same cycle. They do evil, God's judgment, then they cry, God delivers. So here again, they act arrogantly, they don't listen. God delivers them into the hand of oppressors. Now they can cry with hope. Why? Because they have seen what God has done in the past. Now they're crying with hope. So they say, verse 32. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and awesome God, who keeps covenant and loving kindness, do not let all the hardship seem insignificant before you, which has come upon us, our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and on all your people from the days of the kings of Assyria to this day. Hardship has fallen on us. Please, please don't consider this insignificant. Verse 33 to 7, 37, they, they, they recite again how just God is. You're just in all that has come upon us. You are right. You have dealt faithfully, but we have acted wickedly. Our fathers have not kept the law and or paid attention to your commandments. And, but they in their own kingdom with your great goodness, which you gave them, with the broad and rich land which you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their evil deeds. We are in distress because we are oppressed. You have allowed this to happen to us because we have not paid attention to you. So let's just step back and see what we have learned here. God's people who are in distress pay attention and listen to what he is doing. We see that. They learn that he is a gracious God, a compassionate God, who's slow to anger and full and overflowing with loving kindness. As they pay attention to God, they recognize that. They learn that God never forsakes his people. We also learn that people tend to forget God and they tend to be stubborn in their ways, then life gets good. In this case, they learned that the consequence was Discipline. It was no surprise because God had won them. But this same God who delivers his people when they cry out and come back to him. This is the God who delivers His people when they cry out to him and they come back to him. Now, if we think about it, they listened, they paid attention. They confessed. That means they agreed with God as to how he described their situation. Now, what does it mean to come back to him? to come back to him would mean that they are living a life of worship. They're living in a way that says God is worthy of everything, my allegiance, my devotion, my ways, and God is worthy of honor. So living worshipfully would mean that we live in a way that God that says God and his wo- ways are worthy of following, of imitating, of adoring being devoted to, and of honoring. So what does God expect of us? As we learn from here, listen attentively, pay attention to God, just like the people in Nehemiah's day. We learn that we ought to confess wholeheartedly, agree with God as to what he says about him and about us, just like the people in Nehemiah's day. And live worshipfully, if it is god who worship if it is god who is worthy of all our allegiance and devotion then we should follow him in obedience just as the people did in Nehemiah's day and we'll see a little further that further in the next chapter next week so what does all that look like in daily life today i want to illustrate that to you by looking at a couple of points in romans chapter 12 Turn with me to Romans chapter 12. What does living worshipfully mean in normal daily life? There are many ways to illustrate it. I'm just picking a couple. Romans 12 says, one familiar verses, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Uh, I don't know whether you've thought about it. A sacrifice once delivered is one offering, a cut perhaps, and it's done. But a living sacrifice, that is painful. That is costly. If I have to be a sacrifice on the altar that's living, that means I, I would be one who's suffering in pain and, and going through a very costly exercise here, to be a living sacrifice, which, we are told, is the acceptable form of worship. So God calls us to live in a sacrificial way as living sacrifices, which is essentially living worshipfully. Now, what does that really, uh, how does that really play out? Let's take verses 3 through 5. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. What might it look like if I listen wholeheartedly and live worshipfully listening to this, that I spent the day thinking of myself as I really am? what will my relationships look like? What might my conversations look like if, we have, if I have a reason, reasonable assessment of, I, of myself not thinking more highly than I ought to think, which is a form of living sacrificially. If I think I am a somebody here, and if I expect you to treat me like a somebody, and if you don't treat me like a somebody then I might be tempted to treat you like a nobody because I think so highly of myself. How do I work this? How do I live an obedient life? What's the fuel in my life that allows me to to keep away from this kind of thinking, which is an acceptable form of worship? Well, he goes on to say, he hasn't left us without information yet. Verse 4. For just as we have many members in one body and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members one of of another. And we have so many gifts and so on. So we ought to constantly remind ourselves that we are parts of the same body and there is no reason for any of us to think more highly than we ought to think because God has adopted us and brought us into this one body that he has, for, he has made. It is not easy, obviously. It is hard. But if we struggle with it, then we have to constantly think about this. What about verses 9 through 10? Just another example. It says, Let love be without hypocrisy. In other words, don't pretend to love others, but really love them. Seek the good of somebody who hasn't treated you well? What might it look like if we seek the good of a colleague, a boss, a friend, or perhaps a sibling who has said something that really hurt your feelings? What does loving a person like that look like? What does it look like to seek the good of a person? After all, that is living sacrificially, a sacrifice sacrifice that's living an acceptable form of worship. How can we cultivate this desire to obey against our very natural instincts? The gospel is the answer. The next time you find it difficult to love someone, think about God's love for you. If God can love me as unworthy and wretched as I am, and then shower me with overwhelming grace to bring me into his fault and then to enrich me beyond measure. Is there any reason why I cannot seek the well-being or the good of another? Is there any reason that I cannot love another? It is hard, don't get me wrong. It is hard. But I need to constantly think about what God has done in my life. And that is brothers and sisters, is gospel living. Or think about delighting to honor one another. Be devoted to one another, verse 10, in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. What might happen to relationships at work or at home if we give preference to one another or take delight in honoring each other? How can we do that? It's not always easy. It's difficult to honor people who rub you the wrong way. It's difficult. But again, the gospel is the answer. If God could honor me when I absolutely did not deserve it, and then give me eternal life and the joy of being with him forever, will that be enough fuel for me to honor another, to give preference to another. This is gospel living and this is presenting our bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual uh, service of worship. God's people in Nehemiah's day were in great distress. So what did they do? They paid attention to what God said. They listened attentively they agreed with God's description of the reason for their distress they confessed wholeheartedly they decided to live according to the instructions of God whom they worship in fact verse 38 there says that they came together and signed an agreement and next week we'll see what they signed up to do which is to live in obedience they decided to live worshipfully And so, perhaps you're in distress. It may be emotional distress. It may be financial distress. It may be marital distress. Parental distress. Any kind of distress. But as God's people, we can do just the same thing that the people in Nehemiah's day did. Listen attentively, confess wholeheartedly, and live worshipfully. May God help us as we step forward. Because after all, he's a gracious and compassionate God. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in loving kindness. He never forsakes and he always rescues us. Father in heaven, we thank you for you are our God. You are our Father who has given us the privilege to come to you. As we listen to your word, we pray that you'd move our hearts to respond. Respond to live lives that are worshipful, that are truly obedient to you, that through all of that, you might be honored, that we might do this for your own glory and for our own good. To that and help us, Lord, because we are helpless. We pray that you bless us to this end as we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We do have a time of uh, response here in prayer as the prayer team comes forward on either sides of the podium here please feel free to come forward. Uh, They would love to pray with you. Maybe it's a burden you have. Maybe it's a praise that you'd love to uh, share with a brother or sister. And then pray together. This is our time to respond to what God, what we have heard from God this morning.